series through the Bible this week. And this week we are on the ages of kings and prophets. So if you're wondering where in the Bible this age covers, it covers all the way from 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, plus many prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many of the minor prophets. Most of the Psalms were written by a king. Uh, then you have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all these written by uh, King Solomon. And so, and how do we cover this range of material? There's so much there to preach on. But there's good news. If you're wondering, that's so much to preach on. There's good news. Tonight at 7, I have high school, so that's a natural breaking point for you guys to rest, stretch, get your dinner before meeting back here. I appreciate the sympathy laughs, by the way. I appreciate that. Um, Obviously, we can't cover every detail. So what I want to do today is give a brief overview, and then we're going to look at a couple specific parts of the Bible that I think really show us what's going on here. It's going to show us how Jesus is our king and our prophet. He's the fulfillment of everything that came before in the Bible. Um, but before that, I don't know if he had the images for it coming up. I think they're, they're working on it. Uh, before that, I just want to remind you, yeah, um, which was last week's Joshua and Judges is where we were last week. So what has happened so far in the Bible? Well, we see this beginning. God created everything perfect, but human beings rebelled against him and sinned. Right? That is why everything in the world that is wrong with it happened is because of our choice to rebel against God and choose evil. But even at that moment where humanity rejected God, he had a plan to save us from our own destruction that we brought on ourselves. And he promised Eve, the first woman that was created, he promised her that one of her sons would eventually crush And what we see is crush this snake, which represented all of the evil in the world. And it's this power behind all the evil in the world. And so a son of Eve, which is interesting, by the way. I mean, yes, to us, it's natural. Yes, women have have sons, of course. But when you're tracing lineages and genealogies, it usually goes man to son, man to son, man to son. But it's very specific to point out the son of Eve, right? Yes, also the son of Adam, but specifically son of Eve. That's going to become important in later weeks. But this snake crusher would destroy all evil. And as we continue, we're looking for the snake crusher. And the first one we get to is maybe Abel. Well, then Abel was murdered. So no, not Abel. Well, maybe it's Seth, but Seth eventually passes away. Then we get to this guy Noah, where all the world is evil and God completely whopped wipes everything clean, and you have it almost like a reset of creation where there's water over everything like in the beginning of Genesis. And like maybe this Noah guy who's righteous, that God is starting over everything, maybe he's the snake crusher. And you even see his parents predict, hey, this Noah guy will bring an end to the curse, that work will no longer be toiled because of Noah. And yet, as soon as this ark lands, what happens? Well, Noah gets drunk, and, and things happen, and it doesn't end well, right? And we're like, no, this this can't be it. And so the Bible continues forward. Human beings continue to do evil and rebel against God. And then God chooses a certain man called Abraham. And he makes Abraham his own, his own chosen person to follow after God. And he says, by the way, Abraham, one of your seed, in other words, one of your sons, he, uh, he is going to bless all of the nations. And the language is interesting because you get this picture where Abraham is going to become a nation But also there's something very singular in this seed, right? This one person, this one man will bless all of the nations. And so you trace this lineage. You see Israel become a nation from Abraham's line. And you're like, okay, well, what's going to happen here? And we see God rescues them out of Egypt. And yet that people he rescues out of Egypt immediately starts grumbling and whining and not trusting the God who literally split open a sea in front of their eyes. I'm like, these people, God, this is where that chosen snake crusher is going to come. And what happens, and they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they're rebellion and their children, they get to go into this promised land that God is going to make a nation out of. We're like, okay, maybe this nation will be better. And that's where we were last week. How did this nation do? 
Well, if you're reading Judges, what you see is they continue to get more and more and more evil. The nations that God judged for their horrendous evil by kicking them out of this promised land, giving to to his chosen people, Israel begins to be even worse than them. And if you read Judges, and if you only had it in children's Sunday school, you, you might get this picture of these superhuman people who rescue God's people all the time. And it's, it's fun for all these stories. Um, but you get this impression that these aren't great guys, and Israel keeps descending further and further, which is true. But what you may have missed is the whole half of that book. There's no longer rescuers. Instead, it's just this horrific downward spiral of evil. And it ends with this note that during that time, there was no king. And so each man did what was right in his own eyes. And so what do we jump to today? Today we jump to the kings. And I want to tell you about this history before we dive into the specifics. But first, um, I am going to pray and then we will get started. So, Father, I thank you for your word that you've given to us so that we might know you. I thank you that you gave it to us in a human way so that we can understand it. And yet we can trust it because it is your words. I pray that we would listen closely to it, that you would help us to see the big picture of the story that you were telling, and that we would see your heart for us through it. And it is in your son's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so what is this time of the kings and the prophets? So you see that Israel's God's chosen people left to their own devices. They're not doing well. So God brings about a king, and he does that very interesting. So at the very beginning, we zoom in on this interesting person named Samuel. Now, Samuel was a miracle baby. His mom, as often happens in the Old Testament, is unable to have a kid, right? And this will become important once we get to the New Testament. And so she prays and pleads to God, and God miraculously gives her a son. And she dedicates this son to the priest, just gives him over to the priest. And so in many ways, even though Samuel is not a Levite, he functions as one of the priests of Israel, even better than the priests of time's own sons who were wicked and, and were not doing good. And so Samuel leads Israel as the last and honestly as one of the best judges. He, he points people to the God that they should serve. He leads in, in a kind of a priestly function as well. And also as a role as prophet where he rebukes Israel for the sin and calls them to return. But as Samuel gets older and as the people of Israel look back on this time of the judges, they're looking and they're going, well, who's going to lead us now that Samuel's passed away? His sons? Well, it turns out Samuel's sons did not inherit their father's character and they didn't trust him. So they asked Samuel, they said, Samuel, we want a king so that we can be like the other nations. Now, here's the problem. Israel was chosen by God specifically so they would not be like the other nations. That was like one of the one thing, right? They're supposed to be a nation of priests set apart, different in this world of evil so that God's character shines forth brightly. And yet they're tired of that. They want to be like the other nations. And Samuel gets upset by this. But God tells them, it's not you they're rejecting. They're rejecting me. But what's interesting is, if you've been reading Deuteronomy, you'll see God already planned for this. He knew they would ask for a king. He says it right there in Deuteronomy, and he made a provision. So the first thing he does is he gives them a king, exactly like they want. This guy is tall. He is big. He's everything outward you would look for in a king, a guy by the name of Saul. But the great irony of this is, even though God gives them exactly what they want in a king, that is the problem. As we'll see, one of God's fiercest judgment against humankind is he gives them exactly what they want. Whenever the Bible says, and so God gave them up to, and God gave them over to, God gave them what they want, that's an act of judgment. Because this king that outwardly looked big and fierce and would lead them like the other nations, this king was hiding because he was scared. And he didn't get better from there. He did not trust God. He did not follow God's law as the kings were supposed to do. And so God had Samuel appoint someone unexpected. One of the youngest is this family of many, many brothers, so unexpected that when Samuel called upon this guy by the name of Jesse, uh, and he said, hey, where are your sons? God will appoint one to be king. He brings out all of his sons, 
And he goes through all of them, and Samuel's like, well, no, God hasn't appointed any king. Are you sure you don't have another son? And then Jesse's like, well, I got one more, but you don't want him. And so they call David, and they appoint David as the king. And what you should know about this time period is David is what God calls a man after God's own heart. And he sets Israel well. He loves God passionately. He obeys God faithfully, and he leads Israel well in his lifetime. But even David is prone to sin. So we, we zoom in on David. We see that even though he's been appointed king, he doesn't take it on himself. He follows Saul, even though Saul tries to have him murdered many times, he never rebels against them. He says that if God gives me kingship, it'll be in his timing. He will not take it for himself. God, David trusts God in giving him the kingship as he promised, when he promises, right? And so then he takes over, he becomes a king, he conquers, and he starts to gain all this land that God had promised the Israelites that they had failed to gain before because they rebelled against God, and so God didn't let them gain it, right? And so now they start to gain it, and you see this one nation united after man, after God's own heart, and you're like, okay, the snake crusher is coming. Israel is finally getting their nation. They're finally getting all their land. They're finally following after God, and you get the story so much that David, who is passionate about God, it says that he wanted God to have his own temple. You see, at this point, God's temple, the place where they worshipped him, was in what was called a tabernacle. It was a tent because when they were wandering in the wilderness, they needed to move it. And David goes, okay, we have the nation. Let's give him a temple. And so he talks to a prophet by the name of Nathan. And he's like, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan's like, yeah, do that. That sounds amazing. You absolutely should. But that night in a dream, God tells Nathan, tell him this, David cannot make my temple, right? And there's a reason, we see later on the reason as David talks to the son, the reason David is not allowed to build this temple is because David is a man of war. He has blood on his hands. And part of you, as you're reading this, goes, that doesn't seem fair. God wanted him to make war. God wanted him to conquer these nations so that they could have their land and be in peace. Why does he then punish them and say, you can't build my temple? But here's the point. Even though God in a sinful world, does use tactics like war for this nation to provide peace. And war and death is not a good thing. It is an effect of the fall. And when God builds his temple, he is a God of peace. He is a God of life. And so he wants his temple made by a man of peace and of life to represent who he is and what he is working in the earth. Even though now, because of sin, there's violence and there's death and there's warfare, and even righteous men get sucked into this sometimes, it is not good in and of itself, right? And so we see that. But here's the thing. God still loved David as a man after his own heart, and even though he didn't allow him to build his temple, he gave him something he never expected. God made a personal covenant. So if you've been following along, covenant is this thing that God is kind of a relational contract. God promises, this is how I will relate to you. And because he's God, it's a promise that you can trust. And he makes this, this covenant with David. And he says, listen, your kingship will always have a king. Your line will never end. There will always be someone to sit on your throne. And then it's interesting because it talks about this kingship, this dynasty, but then it's almost like he's talking about an individual person. He says, your son, I will make my son, and he will rule forever. So there's this promise of an eternal king that God will, will also be, will be in the line of David, but will also be God's son. And so we zoom in. So we, we get this. What's sad, though, is immediately after this, David then commits his biggest sin. You see, during this time, they were at war with another nation, and God was giving them peace. He allowed them to beat them so badly, people were afraid to come at David. And so God was finally giving the land peace. But as that happened, when his nation, he sent them off to war for what is probably the first time David stayed home. He didn't go out, as he should have, to lead his army. And as he was staying home, he was on his roof, and he was looking out. And he saw this woman that he found to be beautiful and attractive bathing on the rooftop. And he's like, I 
want her. But it turns out this woman was the wife of one of his soldiers. That didn't stop David, though. He brought that woman to his house. He slept with her. And then turns out after he sent her home, thinking no one will find out, it was just a night of fun, she says she's pregnant. So instead of David repenting of his sin, he doubles down. He goes, oh, this is bad. So he sends for that soldier to bring him home. He's like, I'm going to trick him. I'm going to get him drunk, have him sleep with his wife. So he thinks it's his kid, which is horrifically evil, right? But he thinks he can do that. But it turns out that his soldier is a more faithful person than David is in this moment. He says, listen, everyone is at a war. How can I enjoy the comforts of home when our people are out in tents making warfare? I can't do that. So he stays in the palace. David realizes he can't trick him, so instead he sends him back with a letter to the general, and he tells the general, hey, I want you to put this man at the front lines, and I want you to advance on the wall, and then I want everyone to withdraw around him. In other words, David has this man killed. This is a man who is supposed to be a man after God's own heart a perfect king, leading Israel into the promised future, and he commits this horrifically evil act. Eventually, God confronts him, and, and the thing about David that does make a man after God's heart is he genuinely repents. From his heart, he apologizes to God. And the, but that doesn't stop the consequences of the sin. We look at his family from here on out, and it's in turmoil. We look at what happens to the nation because of this, and, and, and eventually David has to wrestle with people plotting to overthrow him and other things because of his sinful acts. And then we get to Solomon, his son, who was born, by the way, of that woman that David stole, Bathsheba. Solomon is the promised king to build the temple. Solomon, when he becomes king, he, he, and God tells him, I'll give you anything you ask. And instead of asking for riches or wealth or power or fame, he asked God for the wisdom to rule his people. Because he felt overwhelmed. And so God's like, well, because you asked for that, I'll give you wisdom and everything else. And so Israel grows and expands and enjoys incredible wealth and prosperity and peace. And then, um, by the way, the Solomon guy, you would think maybe he's the snake crusher too. But despite all of his wisdom, he turned out to be incredibly foolish at the same time. Though God said, do not marry multiple women, especially don't marry foreign women because they will make you worship their gods. What does Solomon do? He marries hundreds, like literally hundreds of women. More women than there are days of the year. There's no way he knew all their names, right? Now, I realize a lot of this was political to make allies and peace with other nations. But God said, don't do this. He should have trusted God for peace without disobeying God's commands. And so because of this, Solomon brings idol worship and these other gods from foreign nations and worships them. And then his son, who inherits his throne. By the way, this is why I believe the Bible. They tell these stories that are completely unflattering to their history. But you read it and you go, this sounds so true. So imagine for your moment a rich kid, kind of naive and young, suddenly inherits all of his dad's fortune and power and authority. Now, there are some exceptions who can enter that situation and they can handle themselves well. What's the, what do you think, how do you think he's going to respond? What is the stereotype of a rich kid who hasn't had to work for anything in his life, suddenly inheriting all this authority and power and wealth? That's what happens. All right, Rehoboam takes the throne and he talks with his father's advisors and they tell him, yes, the nation has profited considerably because of your father. But in order to do that, he had to tax them hard. He had to conscript people to workers, and your people are tired. I want you to reduce the taxes, and your people love you. You reduce their taxes, reduce their load. Look, everything's made. Israel still prosper, but now your people will love you. And so he did what many young people do. He talked to his friends, his peers, his buddy of the same age, and they were like, these boomers don't know what they're talking about. Right? These old guys don't know what they're doing. This is crazy. Uh, and so this young man decided to prove that he was a true man to the people. He said, you thought my dad was tough. His little pinky didn't, doesn't, uh, oh, sorry, my little pinky is tougher than my whole dad, right? If you thought my dad taxed you, I'm really going to tax you, right? 
this young man trying to prove that he's tough to the whole nation. And, and it's incredibly sad and hilarious at the same time what happens. So you have this whole nation united, 12 tribes, following four, now three generations, three lifetimes of kings. This is what they're used to. And 10 out of those 12 tribes just go, no, we're done, and walk away. They don't make a war. They don't rebel. They just like, yeah, what are you going to do? We're, we're done. We're gone. Have fun. And they walk away. And now, from here on out, if you would show the timeline, from here on out, what you have is you have two Israels. You have a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom of Judah. Now, here's the thing. Because of the rebellion of Solomon, God took away part, a big chunk of this nation as a punishment for the, their rebellion against God, these kings' rebellions. But because of David, he preserved Judah. And then within Judah, there was another tribe. Of course, the Levites were also there. And, and so they have us the southern kingdom. And what happened was the northern kingdom went off and they became their own kingdom. And the southern kingdom was always led by an heir of David. Once again, remember that promise that someone will sit on his throne forever. So we're tracing this heir. Now, the northern kingdom... Even though God chose that king to rebel against Rehoboam and said, hey, listen, I promised David his king would rule forever. If you just follow me, I will make you sit on the throne forever as well, your own kingdom. And immediately he decided to bring altars, uh, idols in, two golden calves actually, which is incredibly ironic because he should have read the Old Testament where what did Israel do when God was on the mountain? They made themselves a golden calf and God punished them for it. He thought, he read that story and goes, that's a good idea. Why don't I try that? I immediately rebels against God. So you have different minds, different kings, a bunch of assassinations and plots and overthrowing, but none of the kings in the northern kingdom were good. They became so evil. It got to the point where God just used another nation, the empire of Assyria, to wipe them off the map. Right? He came, Assyria came, they raised the northern kingdom, they took everyone in that kingdom and charted them off out. And so there was no longer a northern kingdom. All these tribes disappeared into the rest of the world. And so there was only the southern kingdom. Who, by the way, there were some good kings in the southern kingdom. And God always marked them as you're reading through your Bible and you look, and the Bible is always clear. This person was evil. They didn't follow God. And when they were good, they said this person was like their father David, playing back, a man after God's own heart. And they were faithful. But there were few and far between. And, Israel, and even the southern kingdom began to rebel. And so what happened was after Assyria, by the way, after Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom, they just like, ah, I'll conquer the southern kingdom as well. But God miraculously rescued them. Now, I want to talk a little archaeology. I don't want to spend too much time, but it is important. Because the reason I bring this timeline up, even if you can't read it fully, is to remind us these are real people who acted in real time, real events, and real history. Right? And the Bible is clear on this. These things happen. And the way it's written, it's written as history, not as mythology. And yet, there are skeptics of the Bible who say, this never happened. And this is one of those points. Uh, skeptics often pointed and said, listen, Assyria, when they were in the height, they were unstoppable. Every kingdom they wanted to conquer, they conquered. And there was nothing left. They raised it to the ground and cart them off. So the fact that you think little tiny Judah was able to escape Assyria's wrath, that's dumb. This is myth, this is not history. Except... In just the, the last few decades, they found this little, I think it was like a stone carving written by the Assyrian emperor. Uh, I can't pronounce it. It starts with an S. But this Assyrian emperor, and he brags about how he caged up Judah and Jerusalem like a cage. There's nothing they could do, and so they caged them up and then left. And you're reading that, and you go, oh, they beat up Judah. And then you're reading again, you go, wait a second. Every single city that they went to conquer, they raised it to the ground. Why didn't they do that here? Why did they just cage them up and leave? And as you're reading the Bible, what you see is they absolutely, they caged up Jerusalem. There's nothing this kingdom could do. They couldn't fight off the Assyrian Empire, but God miraculously rescued him. He sent a plague that wiped up their army and sent them packing home. And what you know about history is kings 
do not like to record the bad events. They like to put it in the best light. And so you're reading this, why would he go home? Well, one reason he might go home is if his army suddenly gets a plague and they have to retreat out of there, right? And then that would explain why instead of raising it to the ground, they just closed it up and then walked away. You see, God's Bible proves to be true and it teaches this thing even before history does. One more example, and then I promise I'll leave the archaeology alone. When, when uh, archaeologists and historians skeptical of the Bible look at the story, they read David and they go, oh, this is just some nation's myth. They put this ideal king up and they make a mythology, kind of like King Arthur, Ramus and Remulus, but he, he was never actually a real person, right? There's no evidence of it. And th this continued all the way up to the 1990s. And if you're a younger person here, I realize 1990s was all the way in last century. Um, but I promise it wasn't actually that long ago, right? They thought David was a myth until, once again, they found this relic that had this writing about an ally who sought the king of Israel named David, right around the time period where the Bible says David was king. It turns out, even though up to the 1990s, people were like, the Bible's a myth, David character was never real, the Bible was right, even before we knew it. Okay, so that, that happens. And so what happens is the southern kingdom gets more and more evil is eventually God brings another empire, the Babylonians, to conquer them. They conquer their, they come, they beat them up, they bring their king into exile, and then appoint his uncle by the name of Zedekiah as king in his place. But Zedekiah is like, I don't want to pay taxes to the Babylonians. And so he rebels, and Babylon gets furious, right? All they did before was take the king and subject them, but they could do their own thing as long as they paid taxes to Babylon. But now this uppity, tiny little backwater kingdom decides to rebel, so they come down. They conquer it. They bring Zedekiah. They put him down, and in front of his eyes, they murder his son. And then, so that's one of the last things they do. They pluck out his eyes, bind him in chains, and cart him off to Babylon. Then, to make matters worse, they come in, they burn down the palace, and they burn down the temple, and they cart everyone off into exile, leaving only some of the poor. Now, of those poor, they rebelled again. And then they got scared that Babylon would come and completely raise them down. So they fled in terror to Egypt. The one place God continually told his people, do not turn back to Egypt. I rescued you from Egypt. Never turn back there. That's what they did. And so what are you thinking as a Jewish person at this time? Your temple where God dwells was burned to the ground because of your sin. Your king that was supposed to reign forever because of the promise of God is carted off into exile and the palace is raised. At that point, you're thinking, man, I think God's done with us. We pushed him too far. But the amazing truth is the story, if you're reading Kings, it ends on this almost tiny little bit of hope. That first king that was carted off, you know, his uncle was put in his place. That first king, the Babylonian empire, uh, emperor, liked him, took him out of jail, put him up as one of his favorite kings that were, in, that were in prison, and said he fed him well, he clothed him well, gave him a lot of money and privilege, and he died in peace. So it's like this thing. Well, the king died. There's no more king of David sitting on the throne. But like God showed kindness to him even still. Is God still planning something for us? And that's the question. And you get into Chronicles and you get the answer, but Chronicles is interesting. It's meant for those who, the next week, we'll talk about the exile and the return. Those returning, is God still our God? Does he still have a plan for us? The answer meant from that is yes, but right now you're in this limbo. Is God have a, does God have a plan for us? Or is he done with us, right? And that is the history, all right, of this time of kings. But during that time as well, we also have the prophets, now, most of you guys, if you know the prophets, you're probably thinking, oh, these are the guys who made a bunch of predictions about the future, which is true, and it is important, but that's not all they did. That's not even mostly what they did. So if you're priest, they were the people who spoke to God for the people, right? They made sacrifices for the sins. Prophets, in many ways, were the flip side of the coin. They spoke for God to the people, right? They 
they were in many ways kind of like preachers. They pointed to God's law. They told the people how they were rebelling against it and called them to repentance. And so the prophets did that all through the time. They especially interacted with the kings, uh, calling them to repentance. But here's where I want to zoom in on some specific points. Why do we need a king in the first place? Why did Israel need a king in the first place? And why is that important to the story of the Bible? I give you all this history, but why is it important? What is it telling us about God and his plan to save us as human beings from our sin? And I want to remind you where we ended last week. At the very last verse of Judges, and that's Judges 21, verse 25. And by the way, a lot of these verses I'm reading off to you, but I encourage you to read them on your own, read them in context, because one of the things we believe about the Bible is that it's our sole authority, right? When I preach, I am the only authority I have as a preacher is because I bring the Bible to you. So read it, make sure what I'm saying is true to the context. I encourage you to do that this week. Um, but this is what that verse says. It says, essentially, that during this time, there was no king. So each man did what was right in his own eyes. So what is this telling us? Well, understanding the context, understanding all the evil that Israel had just committed on their own, that is, they became worse than all the other nations around that. What it tells us is this, that human beings in our sinful conditions will sprint as fast as we can to the most evil thoughts and actions and deeds that we possibly can. The only way that we do not race headfirst into our own destruction from our own evil is if we are restrained. And so God puts these governments in their place to hold us back. He says that in the New Testament as well. And yes, these governments are imperfect. These kings, as we see, are imperfect and downright sinful and evil sometimes. But even that is better than leaving every man to do what is right in his own eyes. Because when that happens, utter incredible, atrocious evil takes place. And, God, and, and it actually says that, that one of the things God and his grace and his kindness is doing right now is he is restraining humanity from being as evil as they want to be. In his kindness, he doesn't let us go as far as we want to go in our own evil. And if you look around you, you can see that. You see the atrocities that human beings left to their own devices. Even people who seem normal and ordinary when they're put into mobs and into nations where it's moving towards mob rule, they commit some atrocious acts of evil and murder and violence, right? That's human nature left on unrestrained. And so God in his kindness is restraining it for a period. And it says, it says that there will come a day where God will bring ultimate judgment to people. And when he does that, that ultimate judgment is this. He will stop restraining us. He will let us rush straight forward into what we truly desire. And as human beings, that's destruction. That is evil, right? And so we need a king. We need a restraint. The king's job was to enforce God's law. So they were to bring justice and peace, right? So you have these three offices in the Old Testament. You have the priest, whose job it was, in order for God to dwell with his people, they had to plead on behalf of the people to God. They had to make things right. Because otherwise, sinful people in the presence of a holy God will be utterly destroyed. And so the priests did that, right? And we talked about that in the past. And, and we see that Jesus, when he comes along, he, he is the perfect priest. But not only the perfect priest, but the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Because of Jesus, we can now go into the throne room of God with confidence because we have Jesus interceding on our behalf. But on the other hand, we have kings. Their job was to enforce that law, to make sure that there was justice and peace in the land where God's people dwelt. That's at least what they were supposed to do. Right, But what about a prophet? Why do we need a prophet? So this is where I encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy 18 with me, and we're going to read this together. Normally, we would read together at the beginning of the sermon, but like I said, I had to give a big recap. So turn Deuteronomy 18, and I would like you to stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Right, This is important, right? We, we are actually going back to Moses. I know he was several sermons ago, but in order to understand what prophets are and why they're important, we need to go back. So, 
Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 9, this is what Moses says to the Israelite people. Now, here's context. Deuteronomy, right before they're entering the promised land, Moses gives this final rehearsal of the law to the people. And this is what he has to say. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the names of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, you can be seated. A lot is happening there, so let me give you the recap. God is calling this to be a nation unlike the nations around them. And nations around them, when they wanted to hear from their gods and they wanted to receive advice, they went to the sorcerers and the divinators and the seers and all these other people. And they did these horrific practice of violence and evil in order to get guidance. But that's not who God is, and that's not what his people should do. So instead, he would send them a prophet, right? Because it's interesting, while God was talking to Moses face to face, he's one of the few people in the scripture that God has promised to do that with, uh, when he's talking to Moses face to face, giving him the law, the elders of Israel are like, we can't go with you. If we go with you, we're going to die. And at first reading, if you're like me, you're like, these guys are just cowards. Go meet with God. But actually, what God says is, no, they're right. Why are they right? Because to be a sinful human being in the presence of a holy, just, and righteous God will be your death and undoing. And you're saying, we were made for a relationship with God. And this very act of being separated from God robs us of who we're supposed to be as human beings. It robs us for being our full human self. We weren't made for this separation. And so God, in order to communicate, even though we're sinful, he gives a prophet like Moses. And they're supposed to speak for God. And, and the, the question arises, well, what do we do with that? Like, how do we know that this is actually a prophet speaking for you and actually listen to him? Because that's a lot of authority. And how do we know it's not just someone like, hey, if I say I speak for God, I'll get what I want done, right? And so God says, well, it's easy. If what they say comes true, they speak for me. If not, they're a liar, kill them, which is pretty steep. But also, someone presuming to speak for God, that's a huge presumption. But as you're going through Israel, and by the way, this is how that happened. Prophets often spoke of things way in the future. How can you know if that come to pass? So they'd give a sign in the present, and they go, how do we know that you're speaking the truth? Well, this will happen. If that happened, they're speaking from God. But here's what happened as Israel went on, what they found was, man, these prophets, I don't want to follow them. <laughs> they, they make me follow the law, and that's hard. I don't want that. But these other guys, they say they're speaking for God, and they tell me I'm doing fine, and God loves me, and he's blessing me just as I am, and I can do whatever I want, and God's still going to bless me. I think I'll follow them. And here's the thing. 
that doesn't happen today. We would rather hear what we want to hear and continue our lives the way we want to live instead of hear the truth and have to respond to it. But what the scripture teaches us is just because you have someone lying to you doesn't mean you're innocent because God gave you a way to discern the truth. Just because you rejected it, just because you chose not to hear it does not make you innocent. You can know the truth, but you would rather hear a lie because it's comforting in the moment than the truth because that requires you to repent and turn back from what you're doing. That is true then as it is today. And so what Israel did was they gathered around them all these false prophets who said, God is blessing you. God is doing, God loves you. You're doing fine. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep oppressing the poor. He wants you to keep that money. Keep divorcing your wives. They're, they're a pain anyways. That's fine. God, God's okay with you anyways. Keep doing all these things, right? And, and, and when the actual prophets came along, they're like, you guys are just a bunch of killjoys. You're cranky and grumpy and what you're telling us to do is just terrible. We don't want you. And so they would, they would not only run them off, but they would often put these true prophets to death. Instead of hear the truth, they'd rather murder God's spokesman. Right? Why do we need a prophet? Well, we need a prophet because we need, as sinful human beings, to hear the truth from God. We need a prophet because we were made for communion with God, and yet our sin has separated us. But here's the thing. Human kings and human prophets were not enough. We saw that even though Israel did prosper for a time, that eventually they continued in their own sinful downward trajectory until God brought judgment. That is why when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're saying, hey, it is always pointing to Jesus. It's not the fact that God came up with a plan and then Israel kept thwarting it, and so he had to come up with a new plan, and they kept thwarting it, and God was just like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. They keep disobeying me. No, God knew what human beings were like. He knew that even human kings would turn to evil and that they would never listen to the true prophets, at least not permanently. Because the sinful condition of man is this. It's not just that we did evil and we need to stop. It's that in our hearts we love evil and we will always pursue it and we hate what is good and we will always reject it unless God changes our hearts. And so we need a king who is not sinful. We need a king who will not die. We need a prophet who is not corrupted by sinful human impulses. We need a prophet who will not pass away. And this all leads us to this. Why do we need more than just a merely human king and prophet to lead us and point us to God? Why did we need Jesus in the first place? And so I want to point you, and I want to start with the kingship. So this is the last place um, I want you to turn, but I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, all these verses are in your bulletin. I encourage you to look through them out throughout the week to understand the context. But we're going to start in verse 9, and I'm actually going to read a little bit more because if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, some of this should sound very familiar, even though it's written several centuries before Jesus shows up on the scene. So Isaiah chapter 9, I am going to start in verse 1 here. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time, he brought contempt, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. By the way, just a reminder, Jesus of Nazareth, which is in Galilee. All right, so follow along. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trumping warrant... Um, warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son 
is given, following law, the son of Eve, the snake crusher, the seed of Abraham brings blessings to all nations, the son of David to reign on the throne. This is all pointing back so that we can look forward to this coming Messiah that fulfills all these promises, right? For to us, a child is finally born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forever and forever more. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do it. What is this telling us? That all these promises in the Old Testament, that it looks like human evil has thwarted time and time again, looks like we are running out of the patience of our God because every time he tries to rescue us, we run straight uh, straight forward away from our God and into rebellion. And yet this whole time what God is saying is, that doesn't surprise me, that's not the plan. These kings, they're just shadows. They're just meant to point forward. They were never meant to be the king that I promised. These prophets, they're just shadows. The better one is yet to come. These priests, it's just a shadow. The sacrifice is a shadow. It's meant to point you to something greater that I am doing, and it all culminates in this. This king, this son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David, who is coming, who will not die, who will not be corrupted by sin. Why? Because this human being is also mighty God, everlasting Father. Remember, God's plan to rescue humanity from ourselves is Him. He plans, even though human beings separated ourselves from God and have no hope of getting back to Him, God in his kindness stepped into humanity because we could never step into to Godhood, right? So he did the work for us. He sent his own son to become a human being, to suffer all the indignities of a human being, even experiencing death. Why? So that we could finally have a king who would not fail. So we could finally have a prophet who would not only tell us the words of God, but is the word of God himself. That gap that has existed ever since the fall between humanity and God, he has crossed. Even though human, sinful human beings could never be before a holy God, God brought on sinful human flesh onto himself and came to us. And As he did so, he forever dealt with our sin. He became the sacrifice and once and for all killed it, once and for all killed death, so that we can now enter the throne room of God with boldness because Jesus has dealt with our sin. He is the word of God, not just just from a distance through a human intermediary. He is the word of God himself coming to humanity so that we might communicate to God directly. You understand all this Old Testament and you're wondering, why is God doing it this way? Why is he bringing sinful, evil men to lead these people? It's just going to end badly. And what you realize is this is just a shadow. It is building to something so much greater than anyone could ever imagine. Do you think David, when he's asking God to build this temple, do you think he ever expected that instead of that, what God would say is, no, but... I'm going to send my son to become one of your sons. That's unimaginable. And yet that's how much our God has loved us. So what does that mean for us? By the way, there's a couple extra verses that I encourage you to read that just show us why Jesus was needed and not just human prophets and human kings. So if you read John 1, 1 through 5, you'll see that Jesus is not just brings the word of God, but is the word. And if you read Hebrews, you see that God spoke in all the Old Testament through many ways, but always through prophets. But now he speaks through Jesus, right? But what does that mean for us? What means this? We don't have to settle for destroying ourselves in our own sin anymore. The king of kings, the one who brings peace and justice finally and for all, he can be our king. 
He can lead us out of sin. He can lead us out of death. He can bring us into eternal peace. That's another theme I hope you've been noticing as we go through. We see that God rested, and then Israel is supposed to worship their God by honoring the Sabbath rest. Why? Because it's building. Even though in our sin we don't experience full rest, even though we're always turmoil and toiling for our work, there's a promise that this Prince of Peace finally brings full eternal peace, full eternal rest. Right? This king finally ushers us into a kingdom of Sabbath, a kingdom of rest, a kingdom of peace where justice is fully served. And we don't have to worry about that, right? Before we had to worry about God's justice because if God brought it, we'd be the one destroyed by it because it is our evil that he would be judging. But because Jesus has dealt with us, now God can bring justice and peace and wholeness and we get to enjoy it. That's the story that the Bible is telling that is continually pointing forward and forward. And we as Christians can enjoy the full benefit. We're not just waiting for a future Messiah, a future king and prophet. We have him before us right now. So that's what I would encourage you with. I know that was a lot of information. Like I said, a lot of the books of the Bible are written in this time. But here is what I want you to take away from this. Why do we need a king? Because without a king, each man does what is right in his own eyes. And that's not a good thing. Why do we need a prophet? Because we are sinful and therefore we cannot hear directly from God who is holy without being destroyed. Why are merely human kings and prophets not good enough? Why do we need Jesus? It's because all human leaders are corrupted by sin. Therefore, they cannot bring eternal peace and justice. Prophets can only bring us the word of God indirectly, but we need the word of God directly. And that's what I want you to take away from this whole point so that we can look to Jesus and awe at all that God has done for us. So with that, I want to close us in prayer and then we'll continue worshiping and song together. Father, I pray that as we are searching your scripture, that we would keep in mind that it always is pointing us to Jesus, that all that we have done in our own sinfulness to separate us from you, that you and your love and your grace and kindness has overcome with your son Jesus so that we can just turn to him and find life and hope for eternity. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.